Well, good morning. I'm so delighted to share God's Word with you today. If you've been worshiping with us over these last several weeks, you know that we're in a sermon series called By Faith, where the writer of Hebrews illustrates powerfully what it looks like to have a faith and to walk in faith with a life that pleases God. And so as we turn to that scripture now and open and study it as a church family, I invite you to join me. In fact, let's pray together. Oh, gracious God, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you for the privilege to gather as your very own. We thank you for your presence among us and ask on, on your blessing upon our time. As we open and study your word together, we ask that you would open our hearts, that we would leave more devoted disciples of your son. For it's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Well, we will be in Hebrews 11, beginning at verse 23. And if you're following along in the Pew Bible, you may find the scripture on page 1876. Listen now to God's word. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. This is God's holy word. Thanks be to God. Now, if you are born in a certain era, the mere mention of Moses may conjure up images like this. And the actor Charlton Heston from the epic film, The Ten Commandments, comes to mind. Or if you're much, much younger, you may remember the Prince of Egypt, where despite the fact that Moses lives to be 120 years old, he stays young and tan throughout the entire film. <laughs> but I have to admit, I'm from neither era. In fact, my first memories of Moses are from a children's Bible. And so my first memory of Moses probably looks more like this. But regardless of your age and stage, most of us here this morning are at least a little bit familiar with this incredible life of a man called Moses. We know the miracles that happen, a little bit about them. We, we can remember great scenes of his unbelievable life. God would become, excuse me, Moses would become God's instrument to deliver the Israelites from the bondage of slavery from Egypt. In fact, he would lead them through the wilderness to the very edge of the promised land. But in the passage we just read, the writer of Hebrews paints a picture of a man with such strong convictions, a man of selfless determination, and an uncommon and unusual faith. But as we will see, Moses' life did not begin this way. By way of a brief history, Remember that God had made a tremendous promise to Abraham. He said, 500 years before Moses was born, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. And I will bless you to have the number of descendants. Look at the stars in the sky. Look at the sand on the seashore. You will have that many descendants. 
And each week as we've been following the story of what happened after Abraham, we know that Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac fathered Jacob, and Jacob, we're told, had 12 sons. And so that the generations that followed, God's people grew rapidly. When they entered Egypt, they were probably the size of an extended family, 70 people. But as we'll see over the next few weeks, by the time they leave Egypt, they were a vast company of about 2 million people. And as Richard touched on last week with the life of Joseph, when those people arrived in Egypt, they had the smile of the culture, the favor of the culture was upon them because Joseph was so well-loved and respected. And so when his family shows up during a famine, the people welcomed them in Egypt. But as we get to Exodus 1, we see that Joseph and all of his brothers passed away. Time marched on. And we're told that a new king, a new pharaoh, comes to power over Egypt. And this pharaoh did not know Joseph, nor cared to remember any contributions that an Israelite would make to make Egypt a better place. And so scripture tells us that this pharaoh feared the rapidly growing number of Hebrews. And it was under his regime that the great oppression began. And God's people were thrown into slavery. But scripture says still the number of people multiplied and continued to grow. And so Pharaoh, Exodus 1 ends with this resolute and determined Pharaoh issued a new edict. It read, every Hebrew boy that is born, you shall throw into the Nile. And so it was under these stressful conditions that we learn about a Hebrew boy named Moses. Join me now in Exodus 2 as we get a little bit of background and context for our passage. Now a man from the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the bank of the Nile. And Moses' big sister Miriam hid so that she would see what happened next. Now you know the story. Pharaoh's daughter came down to the river to bathe, and she saw the basket, and she opened it, and she saw a little boy, and he was crying, and she took pity on the baby, and she said, this must be one of those Hebrew babies. And in a stroke of genius, Miriam, Moses' big sister, comes and says, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? And if you've ever had a crying baby, you want to feed him. So she said, yes, go. And so not only was baby Moses rescued by an Egyptian princess, Moses' mother was paid by the princess to nurse and nurture her very own son. From the moment Moses is born, we have a front row seat in how God, how faith in God puts fear in its place. It must have been no easy task to hide a healthy baby boy for three months, and even more agonizing to put him in a homemade float and release him into the Nile. But we're told in Hebrews that this couple feared God more than they feared an earthly king. 
perhaps God himself had given them some inclination that he would use their baby to use in an extraordinary way. Scripture doesn't reveal how much time Moses spent under his parents' care, but we can be sure that whatever time they had, they would use it to impress upon young Moses of his Hebrew roots. Moses, remember who you are and to whom you belong. You belong to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was his hand, Moses, that providentially delivered you at birth. Perhaps God has preserved your life to raise you up and deliver us from this nightmare of bondage. Moses, do whatever they tell you. Gain their trust. Be the best and the brightest. And remember above all things, you are a Hebrew. You belong to the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, we're not given the full account But the writer of Hebrews commends these parents for their unwavering trust in God during such desperate times. But of course, the day came when Jochebed, Moses' mother, had to deliver her son to the temple, to to the palace, and turn him over to Pharaoh's daughter. And she would raise him as her own son. And from that point on, Moses' life changed dramatically. He no longer lived in a slave's quarters, but in the palace courts. He was educated. In fact, we learn from Acts 7 that he was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Archaeologists uncovered, revealed the Temple of the Sun, which would have been the university he would attend. It's known today as the Oxford of the ancient world. So not only was he immersed in culture and in education, The Jewish historian Josephus says that Pharaoh had no natural heir and that Moses was being groomed to be the next Pharaoh. Extra-biblical historians even say by the time Moses reached 30, he had led the Egyptian army to victory over the Ethiopians. From all reports, Moses became an Egyptian success, a highly valued member of the royal household, scarred by battle, wise in worldly matters, and most notably, in succession to the throne of Egypt. However, a dramatic turn of events is about to take place as we continue our reading from Exodus 2. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Moses had witnessed the oppression of the Hebrew people firsthand, and he took matters into his own hands and killed the Egyptian soldier. 
And not only that, the next day he returned to that Hebrew household thinking they would hail him as a hero, a deliverer of sorts. And yet, that's not at all what happened. They let him know, to his surprise, they, his leadership was neither needed nor respected. So in a matter of 48 hours, Moses went from being an esteemed member of the royal household to a hunted fugitive in a foreign land. Fleeing what he thought was his destiny, Moses ran for his life and found himself in a faraway desert, finally falls to the ground next to a well with his head in his hands and asked, what have I done? Time in the wilderness. What happens in the wilderness? It's helpful to know that the Hebrew word for desert literally means to speak, perhaps because the desert is the place where God speaks, where he communicates some of his most important messages to us. In the quiet, lonely place, we are often stripped of all the things we hang on to for comfort, all the things we've busied ourselves with that keep us from hearing that still, small voice of God. And it's here, apart from distractions, God shines a light on what lies beneath the surface of our hearts. Your time in the desert may be a stubborn physical illness or condition that keeps you confined or feeling isolated. Or it may involve caring for an ailing parent or a family member over an extended period of time and you can see no end to it and no help or relief. Or it could be that deep soul ache that comes from a broken relationship, an unfaithful spouse or a rebellious teenager. It may be a failure at school or at work an estrangement from an old friend, or a lifeless, boring job where you're not valued and you don't know your vocation. You see, the desert wears many faces. And isolation is usually a part of the wilderness experience. It can feel as if he's left you there all alone. You may no longer be able to do the things you were once able to do, and fear sets in. You're tempted to believe, I'm forgotten. I'm going to lose my usefulness. Opportunities are passing me by. Where is God? He's left me behind, and time is running out. Don't you know the Hebrew people under slavery and oppression at the hand of the Egyptians most certainly felt this way? And here is Moses in midlife, so far from the only land he'd ever known, he most certainly experience some of these same thoughts and emotions. Where is God? Does he even know? Does he understand? He understands very well, my friend. After all, he's the one who's orchestrated this alone time with you, and he knows how to oversee this curriculum in the school of the desert. His purpose for us is to always draw us close to himself and to build the character into our life that we would not otherwise gain. In our passage, it says that Moses flees to the desert and sits down by a well. 
Doesn't that seem significant? The well has long been a metaphor for the soul and the place one encounters the living God as he deals with our real, true self. Jesus would refer to himself as the living water and the one from whom all springs of living water flow. We may not understand fully the motives of our heart, but we can be sure God does. And with the greatest care and compassion, it's here in the wilderness that God helps us see him for who he is. And then we can understand ourselves. And what did God want to teach Moses during this time in the desert? And what does he want to teach each of us? That he alone is the deliverer. You see, this portion of Scripture reveals the mighty deliverance of our faithful God. Before Moses could become God's instrument to deliver his people from the bondage of slavery, Moses needed to experience God's deliverance firsthand. As we've seen all of his life, Moses lived as an outsider, both among his own people and among the Egyptians. He was living in between two worlds, and Moses' actions reveal that he most certainly wrestled with his identity. Who was he? Was he Hebrew or an Egyptian? Should he have continued to strive in the environment in which he was raised and follow that path marked out for him there? But how could he when he witnessed daily the horrific oppression of the Hebrew people? During his time in the wilderness, Moses must have relived the tension and the most tumultuous events of his life over and over. On that day that he killed the Egyptian, Scripture tells us that Moses looked this way and that. The only problem is he didn't look up. In her book, What the Bible is All About, Henrietta Mears writes, Moses spent his first 40 years thinking he was a somebody. He spent his second 40 years learning he was a nobody. But he spent his final 30 years discovering what God can do with a nobody. Now, with all of this crisis in context, turn back to me to our passage in Hebrews 11, where Moses deals with his, the issues relating to his faith in God and his identity. Scripture doesn't elaborate on the lessons Moses learned during those first 40 years wandering in the desert. In fact, it's almost eerily silent. However, the passage in Hebrews 11 reveal that his time in the desert had stripped Moses of his duplicitous nature, and God firmly established himself as the king of Moses' heart. As we look in verse 24, we realize Moses does a few things. First, he makes his faith in God very clear by first stating what he is not. Let's look at this. Verse 24, when he had grown up, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. In my heart, I refuse to be called the grandson of the Pharaoh. I am not an Egyptian. I am a covenant son of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there's a people to whom I belong. I belong among the God of people, 
And in this case, it was the despised people of God, the slaves of Egypt. But I can no longer ignore God's call upon my life. There comes a time when each of us must take a position. And that, that decision, that position will shape the rest of our lives. Choosing to be known as a person belonging to God means you align your entire life, your whole life, to his purpose. And you allow your identity in him to shape everything else about you. This is more than emotions or feelings. Moses was raised in an Egyptian home and probably felt many times like an Egyptian in education and in culture, maybe even in the religious practices of, of the Pharaoh. How could he not at some times feel Egyptian? He was so comfortable and familiar with those surroundings. But there's no doubt that the writer of Hebrews says, in response to this, we come to our identity in God and now in Christ by faith. I know who I am as a child of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I think there's something very powerful and profound that Moses proclaims his identity as belonging to God because it's not just a question that was relevant for his day, but for our very own age. In many ways, you and I see it every day in our generation and our culture, people are crying out, who am I? And to whom do I belong? Where are the people that I belong? And we see this hunger to identify ourselves, themselves with something or somebody. The issue of identity is such a hot topic in our culture today. As people choose to elevate some aspect of their life with which to identify and to whom they belong, whether it be gender or sexuality or race, Obviously, this is a huge question. The question of identity is very big, but it goes all the way back to creation. There's something deep within us. It's the way we're created. We hunger to know, to say, who am I? I want to know to whom I belong. And perhaps this is precisely why God throughout the Old Testament says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Is your faith in God the most important thing about you? We must understand these same fundamental things about our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ as we consider the depth of God's love for his people and all that he has to say in his word regarding his relationship with us. It's so abundant and amazing and so big that sometimes it's hard to take it in because it transcends every time and culture and place. Who are you in Jesus Christ? Well, you're forgiven. You're made righteous with the righteousness of Jesus himself. You're called and adopted. You are filled with and sealed by the Holy Spirit. The old man, the old self, patterned after Adam, is dead. And you must reckon it so because you are gifted to serve Jesus and his people and 
as you trust in Jesus and allow his identity in your life to be the most important thing about you, you have an important place in his family. You see, some things are so big, both individually and corporately, that we have to take it by faith. Moses' decisive leadership most certainly impacted his successor, Joshua. Do you remember that he would stand one day before the elders of Israel in his day and say, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so in verse 24, Moses defines his faith in God first by what he is not. But before we leave verse 24, I want you to notice it begins with when he had grown up. Literally, the translation is when he had become great. If we move on, I think we miss the significance that Moses was at an all-time high when he made this big announcement and left and did what he did. The wealth and the prestige and the power and the promise of his leadership there's probably not one of us that can understand, fully appreciate what that would have been like. How could he leave? And I think the answers are here for us in verses 25 and 26. You see, Moses looked and considered the great reward in Christ. He had a, fa a faith that factored in eternity. And all of a sudden, the fleeting pleasures of sin of living with a false identity couldn't compare with what, what Christ had in store. Now, Jesus didn't walk in the days of Moses, but just as we saw with Abraham, God gave Moses a vision. He knew the great deliverer would come one day, and that deliverer would be for all times. And the reward of living forever with him trumped anything that was his suffering for a little while now, even to the point of being mistreated as slaves with the people of God. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Having, having taken a position concerning his walk with the Lord, Moses chose to live with the people of God. He chose the path of godliness rather than the passing pleasures of sin. There are no monuments of Moses in Egypt today. What's missing in Egypt, the timeless word of God contains. Moses refused to compromise his commitment, and so can we. Moses willingly left the familiar life to follow God's call. And so can we. In the desert, we each come to the end of ourselves only to see our deliverer face to face. He calls us to walk with him and trust him with every aspect of our life, to leave behind what will not serve us for the journey that he has planned ahead because he promises to sustain us in our sufferings and in our joys as we fix our eyes on him. Will you pray with me? Oh, gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the faith that you gave Moses 
We pray this week that we would begin to think of our identity in you and all that that means, that we would actually leave behind the things that do not glorify you, the things that we hold on to for comfort or perhaps that just keep us in a a place of sin. Lord Jesus, we know that you were preparing Moses for the time that he would meet with you, the great I am so that he might become the deliverer of your people out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt. This week, be with us as we consider such marvelous things, and we know that our faith in you is the thing about us that you value the most. We thank you for this gift to worship you together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.